Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Today, our guest will be a repeat guest that we had on talking about vaccines a year ago, Dr. Kathleen Birchelman. She is the co-founder of the brand new Catholic telemedicine site, mycatholicdoctor.com. And to lead into this discussion, we're going to go through some current statistics and some past history about this. So first, over to you in the booth, Andrew, with some statistics. Yeah, you know, telemedicine, and and we're going to probably get to all sorts of definitions and what it includes and doesn't include, but the idea of telemedicine, rendering or receiving medical services from a healthcare provider that you're not in the same room with over some kind of electronic device. You know, we I came across some recent statistics. Harvard did a study in 2016 that found 15.4% of physicians actually worked in practices that use telemedicine. So that's just a little bit less than one in six physicians. Hmm. And that, that was higher than I thought. Did they define what they meant by working in telemedicine? Uh, they they are in practices that have telemedicine. So, so they kept it vague, I think, just to okay. get kind of a, a generalized number. Because many, the title of the article actually was the use of telemedicine by physicians is still the exception rather than the rule. Okay, so it didn't say if they were using real-time video like Skype to see patients. That would be one of the things they would use, but I think it would Not also the, include other, other types okay. of things. Okay, great. And, and it actually, they, they went on to further identify that 11% of physicians have used telemedicine for interactions with other healthcare providers. So one example of that that I, I'd think of would be uh, when I was working in the ER, I was uh, a solo doc in a remote ER in Indiana on the weekends. And at 2 a.m., if you have a stroke patient, a lot of times you'll initiate regular therapy, sure. but then you'll consult a neurologist who's sitting in some ivory tower somewhere <laughs> via a little webcam and get get their two cents, make sure you're not forgetting anything. So it can really improve patient care. Beautiful. And so that that is one of the things that I think kind of can help us focus the discussion as well. It's still not widespread. It's something that's becoming much more common, and Dr. Bershelman's a perfect example of that. Uh, yes. And in fact, well, let's go through the history of this. I mean, did, when did telemedicine start? I mean, was it cave drawings of somebody with an owie on their toe and they showed their friend what it was? Well, the, the idea originally came up, you know, some people thought as far back as 1879 when the telephone was invented and Alexander Graham Bell, you know, called his friend in to uh, take a look at uh, this lesion on his face. But no, that's not really what happened. But what did happen in 1925, there was a radio and publishing pioneer named Hugo Gernsback, and he predicted that we would someday invent what he called the teledactyl. That sounds like a dinosaur. It does. It sounds like a pterodactyl, but dactyl referring to hand or fingers. He thought that someday there would be a tool with robotic fingers and a projected video feed where you could examine patients from afar. Man, they do use that for the robotic surgery. Exactly. You know? So he really was onto something, you know, totally way ahead of his time. And actually the first time that medical personnel ever used television to see a patient who wasn't with them was back in the 1950s. And they actually started a video link between the Nebraska Psychiatric Institute in Omaha and a psychiatric hospital 112 miles away. And so they started providing video care in real time uh, in 1959 till 1964. So... It started a lot earlier than we think it did. Well, and I, I think mental health is probably one of the places where it has thrived and uh, obviously the first place that it was utilized because there are some things in medicine where you don't need to necessarily be in the same room. You don't need to touch a patient certain times. That's right. So that's I think that's one of the biggest questions I kind of have is how do you decide when it's appropriate to use tele- telemedicine as opposed to when we really should defer or refer them to a more traditional visit. Which will be a great question for our guest. Uh, In the 60s, there was one uh, four-letter acronym group in the United States that took a great interest in it. And that four-letter acronym was the one that consumed my life as a child. That was NASA because they were interested in uh, astronaut health. 
Yeah, you you can imagine, especially those guys on mission for weeks and months, they would need looking after, and especially with they can't really send a healthcare provider. Definitely not a lot of healthcare instruments and things with them. You know, so that I I think they made some big strides there. They did, and that's actually when color television came out. But in 1964, I didn't realize it, but the first uh, video chat came out. AT and T produced what they called a picture phone. Uh, I didn't know that this existed. It never caught on commercially, but it was definitely the predecessor of what we can do now with what we have in our pockets. And and now everybody's got one. But it, it is surprising that it didn't catch on previously. Yes. And then the uh, airplane industry used it. Uh, in 1967, uh, Boston's Logan Airport set up a telehealth system that was linked to Massachusetts General Hospital uh, less than three miles away. And they were able to see, you know, emergent patients that way. And then in the 80s, finally, in 1989, on June 25th, interestingly, the first patient was successfully defibrillated by telephone. That's pretty cool. So in other words, at a Jewish hospital in St. Louis, a patient was sensed to have an irregular heartbeat that required uh, defibrillation, and they were able to send the signal to shock his heart via a defibrillator that he had. So that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. And then in the 1990s, when I was doing some of my dermatology training, the idea of telemedicine and dermatology was really big because it's a visual specialty. And, you know, we started, you know, you have what's called store and forward. And that's just where you have a picture of something, which is a lot easier than, uh, than doing video because then you have to be in the same two places at the same time that each have um, a camera. And back in the 90s, that was a hassle. Well, they they do that a lot with radiology as well. After an image is taken, then exactly it might be looked at locally, but they always send it to the radiologist for an overread. Right. And so, in fact, this past weekend, I actually was the guest in the home of a radiologist, and I slept in the room where he has these enormous monitors lined up on his desk where, obviously, if he's taking call, he can just wake up, crawl out of bed, roll into his office, and look at these big screens with images from the hospital. See, that is that is pretty impressive. I, I can understand why so many physicians are looking at that as a different way of practicing medicine. Oh, absolutely. And in my work, you know, I'm doing facial cancer surgery all day. I'm using telemedicine almost every day because patients want to save themselves a trip, a post-surgery trip. So a lot of times they will send in by encrypted email or, or texting uh, pictures of how they're doing and, and ask me for my response. And it, it makes everybody happy. Um, it takes less time for me. It takes less time for them. And we both are satisfied because we're getting the answer. Only maybe one out of 20 or 30 times do I actually need to see them in person after they sent me a picture. See, and so that, that hits on a convenience but also an obstacle for a lot of people because depending on how the visits are paid for, like in a, in a surgical specialty, the, the payment would be a global payment for the procedure and the post-op. For, right. For a specialty like family medicine, you get no credit for that. So it, it makes it hard for for family doctors to pay for staff or to spend time doing that when they have the overhead to pay. So that's one of the things that I think is holding back a lot of people is the way government pays for these things. Well, and that'll get to our trivia question later, dealing with uh, payment. Uh, and that is a big obstacle. You're right. Uh, I'm not getting paid for doing any of those things. And truthfully, there's no global period if the patient decides not to have a repair. So ah, it's healing gotcha. on its own. But I have not charged for that, uh, at least through this point in my career. Uh, I legally could. And some people would say I'm supposed to, but I, I just don't at this point. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable thing for me to talk about with patients because you'd like to think of medicine not as transactional, but I know, like at our office, we have I've got 25 people that need a paycheck one way or right. another. And so it's it's a, a tough thing to grapple with because you want to provide the convenience, but at the end of the day, you've got to make sure you're being just to everybody who's working on the team. That is that is correct. So as long as they're reimbursing the way they're reimbursing right now, I will continue to do this. But for instance, we also do, uh, well, I don't know if it's telemedicine, but we do our surgery consults be a video of me and then one of my nurses talking on the line because I'm so busy with surgery, I don't have time to see my patients before surgery anymore. See, so there, there is convenience there in saving time and improving efficiency. It is, but we don't get paid anything to do it. Ah, uh, yes. But we're still meeting the needs of the community as we are right now. 
And they say that by next year, 2020, that telemedicine will be an enormous business. I, I've got a number that says $34 billion. That's a huge, yeah, that's billion with a B as in honey. I guess we're missing out on that. Um, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> so it's just going to keep getting bigger, and I think that as patients become comfortable with it, they will probably desire it more. I mean, it's the age of uh, ordering online, you know, food, clothes, groceries, and, and everything else. Which brings us to the medical trivia question of the day. And as I said, it has to do with paying. And, and typically, uh, the leader of the pack in medical payment strategies is typically who? Medicare. Medicare. So uh, Medicare is paying for some telemedicine visits. And they started doing it in what year? And this was for patients in underserved rural areas. So the simple question is, what year did Medicare start paying for some telemedicine visits? We'll be back with our guest, Kathleen Birchelman, MyCatholicDoctor.com, here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the CMA, and we are here with Dr. Kathleen Berschelman. She is the co-founder of MyCatholicDoctor.com, which is a telemedicine, not just app, but a whole full-service uh, industry that she's going to talk about. Kathleen's a pediatrician, wife, mother of seven, and founder with her husband, I believe. Is that correct, Kathleen? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, it's a new telehealth virtual care organization, and it brings together faithful Catholic physicians and other healthcare professionals uh, to you on your smartphone, your tablet, or your computer. Prior to founding My Catholic Doctor, Kathleen worked in St. Louis as an academic pediatrician for 15 years at Washington University and the University of Missouri School of Medicine. Kathleen, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Hey. It is always a pleasure, and start off with a simple softball question. So what is this telemedicine thing? You know, telemedicine, you know, people think about the Jetsons. You know, they had, you know, this doctor on the screen, and it was something of the future. But it's here. The time is here. And it's much more than just, you know, talking to someone on the phone or even uh, just a video consultation for pink eye or the flu. Uh, you, now, in 2019, telemedicine is rapidly changing. We finally have the insurance changes that Medicaid, Medicare, and all the private insurances have greatly increased their reimbursement for virtual care and telehealth services in 2019. So they say 2019 is going to be the year of, of virtual care. We're even moving out of the term telemedicine because, of course, you're not on a telephone. Um, and uh, it is, you know, video-based services, and we can do everything from um, routine minor illnesses all the way through specialized services. And uh, certainly at My Catholic Doctor, um, we are providing both minor, minor illness care as well as many specialized services. Well, you already broached a subject in the intro when you were not on. Andrew and I were trying to tee up the topic with some history and questions. One of our key questions is insurance, because I know I, uh, as a surgeon, provide a lot of telemedicine care through photos that patients text me or email me, you know, post-op, and I don't get reimbursed for any of that, uh, part of post-op care. But the question is, how do you get paid for it? And, um, you know, what has changed radically? You said 2019 is a, a, a new year for that. Yes, and you can bill for that now, actually. That's considered asynchronous telehealth to review. If you review an image that someone texted to you in a HIPAA-compliant manner, you can bill for that service um, through Medicaid, through Medicare, and through the vast majority of private insurance companies. Twenty-nine states have laws that say that you that, that that say that telehealth services have to be reimbursed by private insurance companies. So Ooh. that's part of why this is, and all of this is new for 2019. So as were previously, telehealth was you know this thing where you your insurance company contracted with a major company like Teladoc and you could, you know, call them up or have a video chat with someone you've never met before about the fact that you think you have the flu and they prescribed Tamiflu for you. Um, and it was just for minor illnesses and you had to use this company contract by your insurance company and you never know who you were going to 
see. But telehealth is completely different. Virtual care now means that you can see your primary care physician, your surgeon, your doctor that you already have a relationship with on a video screen, and they can bill for that service. And your copay is going to be the same as your office visit. If they're in network, you're going to pay your in network copay. If they're out of network, you're going to pay your out of network copay. Wow, that's a that's a huge benefit for patients, because so many huge. people I f- I feel like have been sh- they've shied away from this because of the perceived increase in cost. What what number of people are are using this now? Well, the numbers are unclear because again, we're now telehealth is changing. So previously, not many physicians were offering this service because they couldn't get paid for it. Right. And patient, patients were, aren't very used to it. Um, the number, the percentage of people using major uh, companies that were contracted to their insurance companies, such as Teladoc, MD Live, Doctor on Demand, where you, do, you, know, you don't know who you're going to get and you're only using them because they're contracted to your insurance company and it's only for minor medical issues. The percentage of people using those services was about somewhere between 2 and 5%, depending on the insurance company. Um, so utilization of those services was low, but we think everything's going to really change now that you can see your doctor that you have a relationship with very conveniently, and your doctor can be paid appropriately for that service. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to be looking into this when I get out of here because maybe we can standardize it too, and if patients know that uh, ahead of time, it may... Uh, eased some of their concerns. So, Kathleen, uh, how is virtual health care, it sounds like that's the new name, how is it different than in-person medicine? So what are some benefits and what are some drawbacks? Well, the biggest ben- benefit is just the convenience, right? So you can talk to your doctor on, on, on your screen as fast as it takes you to FaceTime anyone else in your family or do a video chat with anyone else. Um, you can. Our platform allows you to make an appointment or to see a like basically be a walk-in, just press the <laughs> see now button. You can you can press wait wait. See how now does walk-in work? <laughs> so the walk-in means that you know you press a button on your tablet, cell phone, or computer that says see now. So you go to the the profile page for the physician or a person that you wish to see. And you um, you just press the See Now button, and it, it, it'll only work if they're currently online, and their phone rings just like your phone or my phone will ring. And that means they pick up and see you right now. Wow, that's impressive. So the number one advantage is, is simply the convenience and um, and also self-scheduling. So, that, you know, it, it, you don't have to call up and wait on hold and schedule an appointment, right? You're going to schedule right through the app. So everything's more convenient. Boom, 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 done. Off your list. You know, see your doctor. Quick chat. Prescriptions are sent to your pharmacy of choice. If you need laboratory work, that can be ordered nationally at any Quest or LabCorp. Um, So you can go to your local lab. Everything, boom, boom, boom. Very convenient. And all of our billing is done afterwards. So um, you don't even have to pay an upfront copay. Your bill will come later in the mail. Um, If there are questions about billing, we're happy to address any of those up front. And we do offer a free uh, initial consultation to make sure that we can meet your needs and to make sure there aren't billing issues. We don't want anyone displeased with our services. So there's a huge convenience and there's a huge satisfaction rate. 92% of people find that they're, they're able to, all of their needs are met through telehealth and they don't require in-person follow-up care. However, for that 8% that does need follow-up care, we're very happy to provide it. Our providers will either invite you to be seen in their office locally, um, or they'll refer you to a local provider. At My Catholic Doctor, we have an unofficial, unpublished list of providers that we know and trust that are practicing in accordance with Catholic teaching, and um, we'll provide a referral as needed if in-person care is necessary. This is most commonly with our infertility patients who require surgical care. That makes sense. Man, that's incredible. So what what kind of coverage are, are you guys at now? Do you find that most of the daytime hours are, are there's somebody ready to see me right now if I call up? It really depends on the state, actually. Um, so there are, there's, the law says that you, the doctor has to be licensed in the state where the patient is located. Uh, so that makes sense. right now we have um, physician 
coverage in, um, I, I believe we're up to uh, 36 states, um, but I, I'm, I'm not at 50. Uh, now, we do have natural family planning services and um, some mental health services in all 50 states. Now that you're you're kind of alluding to, and not to get too far off point, but what what are your thoughts on the the interstate uh, licensure medical compact? Because that that went into effect in 2017, correct? Right. So I, uh, the IMLC is a, a very new service um, that actually it, it went live. My understanding is July 2018, so it's very new, and this allows for physicians to be easily licensed in. 20, right currently in 21 states. So you first have to get a full unrestricted medical license in one of those states, and then the rest of them will recognize that license and not make you reapply. The application process for medical licensure is arduous and can <laughs> take months and um, be very difficult. And um, especially if you're applying to multiple states, they used to require a letter from every other state where you're licensed yes. to say that there's no, um, you know, complaints against your license. So if you were licensed and if you want 50 state licensure, you had to get 49 letters. And all it takes is somebody in some office to drop the ball and not send the letter. And you couldn't get, you, you know, you couldn't get any license. So the process of getting multi-state licensure used to be prohibitively difficult. Now with the IMLC, it's actually quite easy to get multi-state licensure. Now, here's the catch. You still have to pay for those licenses. Wow. So, yeah, that's expensive. It is expensive, but you don't have to get 21 states. You can just pay for the states where you wish to expand your licensure. Well, we have um, a listener who sent in a question several weeks ago about uh, virtual health care, and we'd like to read it to you and have you um, answer it. Okay. She says, my employer switched insurance providers for the fiscal year. The new provider encourages the use of a virtual health app for non-emergency services to save the employee from a high out-of-pocket fee. The app is especially targeted toward team members choosing a high deductible plan in conjunction with a health savings account. So I guess we should explain what, uh, do you understand that, what a high deductible plan and a health savings account are, Kathleen? Well, I certainly do. Could do you, you explain it to our do? listeners? Sure. So uh, the growing trend in the insurance industry right now is for plans that have a high out-of-pocket deductible. So you may have to pay, say, $5,000 out-of-pocket for your family, sometimes even more, before your insurance starts to kick in. But they also use a flex spending or HSA, uh, healthcare savings account, um, which means that that out-of-pocket deductible is being paid with pre-tax dollars through the health savings account. And so for these families, they're really looking for inexpensive ways to get minor care taken care of. They'd rather go use, you know, um, a, a major telehealth organization that's going to take care of their influenza for a small amount of money, then go to an urgent care where they're going to be charged a cash rate for that full service. And so so that's why they're targeting the high deductible um, HSA population, which is, is a very big growing trend right now. Right. In the cheapest way to insure families. My family just shifted to that uh, two years ago this month. So her questions, do you see any ethical concerns of using an app to see a doctor instead of a face-to-face -face office visit? I do not find ethical issues unless the provider, the physician or nurse practitioner or other provider, is, um, is choosing to practice unethically. So, for example, most states have laws that say that your telecare or virtual care has to be equivalent to in-person care to be appropriate for virtual care. So, for example, um, it's in most states, it's considered inappropriate to um, diagnose an ear infection without an ear exam in pediatrics. And now there are devices that allow us to see the eardrum through telehealth. One of them is called Tito, T-Y-T-O, and very soon it will be available through um, major retailers nationwide. And 
so anybody can show me their child's eardrum. At that point, it, an ear infection is an appropriate telehealth diagnosis. But until unless you have one of these devices, um, you know, it would be unethical for me to diagnose an, an ear infection by telehealth. That's a great point. The second part of her question is, for example, prescriptions can be sent to a pharmacy of the patient's choice. Are there regulations in place to prevent abuse of this type of service? Yes, especially regarding controlled substances. So that would be the most common and probably one of the most concerning uh, abuses. And, uh, and right now, we cannot prescribe controlled substances via telehealth. The two big exceptions are um, that are, are special. You can get a special DEA license that permits you to treat opioid use dependent, uh, opioid dependence disorder and opioid use disorder um, through telehealth. And also coming soon is an exception that allows school-based telehealth providers to treat ADD and ADHD using amphetamines, which are also controlled substances. Wow. But with the with with those other than those two exceptions, we cannot prescribe controlled substances via telehealth. I, I may add just one one more little ethical concern, more related to the licensure. But one of the the things that has been debated here in Indiana is that if the the Indiana Medical Licensing Board gives way to this interstate compact, then potentially some providers in say Illinois could prescribe abortifacients across state lines, which would increase maybe bad services. So, so I, interestingly, most states actually have specific laws in their telehealth clause or specific clauses in their telehealth laws that say that exclude um, uh, um, abortifacents or as we call them, um, drugs with post-implantation effects. Um, so, so, you know, um, the pro-choice movement has redefined Yes. pregnancy as implantation. So they say that these drugs are not abortifacents. So we we say that it, it's illegal to prescribe drugs with post, uh, post, uh, sorry, with um, post-fertilization effects. And yeah, so awesome. actually, um, the, I don't have a lot of ethical concerns um, because the majority of states do have that protection in place right now. Now, I am very concerned that that protection can be broken down and that pe- the pro-choice movement is going to go for, um, you know, to allow abortion services through telehealth. And certainly the Planned Parenthood movement is pushing very hard for that. But that's exactly why we need to be in this space. Highlights the, the reasons you need a, a doctor that has similar ethical views, right? That's right. And, and we are working um, very Kathleen, hard, actually. We'd like to uh, continue this after our break with especially your experiences and what's special about My Catholic Doctor. But for now, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And today we are interviewing Dr. Kathleen Bertelman, the co-founder of MyCatholicDoctor.com. So Kathleen, why did you start MyCatholicDoctor.com? Well, it's, you know, it was really a 10-year discernment for my husband and myself. There's 10 years of, of having this thought and this idea in the back of our minds and trying to put the pieces together. And finally, there was this, this moment in adoration where it was very clear that this is what God wanted us to do. And um, uh, I went home and told my husband, and he said, okay, let's do it. And um, uh, then... From then on, the question was not, are we going to do this? It was uh, The question was how, and we spent most of the last two years trying to answer the how. And it's just been a beautiful experience, a challenging experience, but beautiful to see the providers come together and to see the people the Lord has brought together to make my Catholic doctor happen. And that's really the strength of who we are. I can't tell you how humbled I am by the beautiful, highly trained, highly experienced healthcare professionals that are have joined my Catholic doctor. These are not people that couldn't find a job somewhere else. Most of them uh, ha- have 20 plus years experience. They've been um, tried in their faith and they are here to integrate the healing, the Catholic spirituality into their healing arts. At my Catholic doctor, we believe we define Catholic healthcare as answering the call of Jesus Christ 
to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God is near. So I think you're answering uh, what was going to be my next question of what do you offer that no other telemedicine program offers? Well, first of all, it's our, it's the true desire to integrate um, Catholic spirituality into our care as appropriate to the situation and to answer the call of Jesus Christ to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And we believe that Catholic health care is much more than the hot button issues. It's not just what we don't do. It's not that we don't do abortion and euthanasia, um, contraception, all these things. It's, it's what we do do. It's the good, the true, and the beautiful. It's really helping people through their suffering and, and helping people recognize the value of their suffering and helping people, people become healed in, um, in body, mind, and soul and recognizing that we're really God's instrument and that ultimately the healing comes from God. Um, but that we believe in um, the scientific method and uh, allopathic medicine as um, uh, as a, a modality from the Lord to help us heal, to help heal. So Kathleen, you're three months into this um, going live in, in January of 2019. What's it been like so far? How, how are you guys doing? I mean, it's been beautiful to see the group of uh, professionals come together um, and we are still a new and rapidly growing organization so we're rapidly recruiting and staffing more and more states with physicians and medical services and mental health services um, we are proud to have natural family planning in place in all 50 states in five methods um, and in addition we have NAPRO technology and that's our presently our, our most popular service line um, the Challenges have been uh, getting in network with major insurance providers, which is just a logistical challenge, and we're moving through it. So we've been open three months. We've only been accepting insurance less than a month. And within the next three to six months, we will be in network with um, 13 major insurance providers. Oh, that's so huge. Yeah, that's incredible. It is huge. Yeah, because that reduces the patient's copay to their in-network copay. So right now they're paying an out-of-network copay, or they're paying all right. in the pocket. They they can choose um, a cash or low cash rates or an out-of-network copay. For people that are um, on a high deductible or um, or an HSA plan, um, they can also choose to make the same choice. They can choose to bill insurance and then um, pay the insurance rate and then um, have that count towards their their deductible, or they can choose to pay our cash rate and then um, have that count towards their deductible. We will um, provide a, you know, a, a receipt and bill for everything. Oh. Man, that's great. I, I know how hard it is to get all the insurance stuff lined up because I've done that several times. So to get in network with all those insurances, that's really going to increase your availability to, to so many people that are, are limited to that insurance company. So that's going to be wonderful. Well, do you have any stories of how this has affected people's lives in a positive way? For me personally, the most beautiful stories are, and I'm a pediatrician, but my, my most encouraging stories are my, my child's mental health stories that, um, you know, I, I, I have parents at their wits end overwhelmed by child behavior and confused by recommendations from schools and other people regarding what to do about ADD and ADHD medications. And I'm able to really integrate Catholic spirituality into their care, especially for myself as a mother of seven, including um, uh, an autistic child um, and a, also a child with ADHD. Um, and after now, uh, you know, more than 17 years of experience treating behavioral health in pediatrics. I'm a general pediatrician, but I do a lot of behavioral health. Um, I love to see these patients, and they so quickly get better. I, it, you know, once you can really reassure the parent that that they're most of, they're chosen by God to raise this child, and that they can do it, and then give them the skills they need the parenting skills they need and just do that simply, um, you know, a couple of, of points every visit and follow up with them weekly or every two weeks. And then we add medications as needed, always making every effort to avoid controlled substances. Um, and the 
there were, you know, these kids, the behavior turns around so quickly. Um, the family life becomes more peaceful and joyful. And, um, and people are able to really love their vocation of parenthood again. And the kids are happy and the family life is happy. And that's a domestic church. It brings me so much joy. Well, that's beautiful. And I think you mentioned offline that you have stories, too, that deal with infertility. So my Catholic doctor's uh, service line that's most popular right now is the NAPRO technology. I think that's because this service is so popular and it's so hard for people to find a NAPRO specialist locally for so many people. And NAPRO is? NAPRO is Natural Procreative Technology which is women's health services that have grown out of the Creighton model of fertility care and are consistent with Catholic teaching. I know but, there's, you know, there's some states where it's not even available at all with a with an in-person physician, so you guys are filling a huge void there. We are so delighted, actually, and we have one physician, I swear she's a gift from God, that um, is licensed in 10 states and an OB-GYN and NAPRO trained. Wow. Um, yeah, and so she's um, covering a, a huge piece of the United States for NAPRO. Then we also have um, many people running that are just in one state, but they're able to now reach that whole stage, right? Um, and that's what we want, especially with these NAPRO physicians. Pe- people can initiate their care with a doctor that's maybe several hours away, get their labs done locally, their imaging done, um, talk to the doctor. The doctor can review records from any other uh, secular provider or any other provider. So if that person's already had evaluations, has already seen a, reg- a secular ob we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to redo any of that. And um, then when in-person care really becomes necessary, that patient can travel for that care. And usually they're willing to travel infrequently a couple of hours. Um, And then all their follow-up is through telehealth again. So again, really facilitating this kind of care. How big is your network of medical professionals right now? Right now, we're 41 professionals, um, including 18 physicians, and we're active in. Are all, we have some services active in 50 states. States we do not have MD or DO. We don't have medical services in every state at this time, and that's due to licensure um, issues. And if a patient wants to sign up for a visit, how do they do it? So you go to mycatholicdoctor.com, and uh, our website's very self-explanatory. We have uh, you can pick your ser- with a, the service that you need, whether that's women's health or pediatric care or adult care or natural family planning education, end of life care, mental health, whatever service you need, you can pick, and it'll um, then ask you how old the patient is trying to determine if you need pediatric or adult care, and then it will ask you what state you're in, and then it'll give you a list of appropriate professionals that can, that are licensed that can take care of you. Um, if we don't have someone that can take care of you, um, you, anyone can download our app, and we have free text messaging through that app, and, or you can also email us at info at My Catholic Doctor, and we'll make a referral for you. Do have have you found that it's been difficult to recruit physicians to to practice with my Catholic doctor? No, I am amazed by the number of contacts I get. I have more than one person a day contacting me with interest about becoming a provider. I have more people interested than I have time to interview, and wow. Right now, our um, we, we one of our problems was the cost of putting providers on our technology platform. Um, that unless you're that person seeing a certain volume of patients, um, it, it was too expensive to to support them on our technology platform. But we actually just this week were able to work out a new financial situation with our technology partner that is going to allow us to onboard um, a a whole bunch of physicians that I've been waiting to hire. So we hope to rapidly expand our physician services, um, including um, our NAPRO technology services, as well as our mental health services. Man, that that will be wonderful. I I guess it it also leads to a question that I I have about malpractice. Do you you find that the malpractice situation compared to traditional in-person visits is is better or worse or the same? 
Well, the malpractice premiums are much less than um, in-person care. And that is largely because we're not doing things that are high risk, especially things like surgery and procedures. Um, so, and all of our providers do get malpractice through my Catholic doctor. We, we have a, um, oh. we provide malpractice. Wow, what a deal for both patient and physician. Well, Kathleen, on this big, broad subject, what else do you want listeners to know before we we end this topic? And then we have a special bonus question for you after this on a different topic. So join now for free. It's free to go to My Catholic Doctor and um, download the app and get on our email list. And even if you're not sick, just be ready to go. Um, you can uh, text us for free. There's a free 10-minute um, intro session. Or, and a free, either, we offer a free 10-minute initial visit with any provider. We're not going to charge you for care that doesn't contribute, you know, that doesn't work for you. If, if, if we don't have the right service available to you or if your insurance isn't going to work out, um, we're not going to charge you. So use our free texting, use our free visits, understand whether, you know, what we can do for you. Um, we're here for you. Super. And Andrew has a question again from a listener, and you are the expert. So, Kathleen, this goes back to a previous show that you did with us um, about the ethics of vaccines. And so the question is from from a patient, just listen to the ethics uh, on vaccines program. The question is about a child who has not received any vaccines at all and and maybe a couple of children. They, they are between the ages of four and eight years old. Is it too late to give vaccines to them? The, the writer says that they do believe the crisis of trust is exactly why so many people do not get the vaccines. Right. So you had to recap just a little bit in our prior podcast on vaccines. We talked about the crisis of trust between providers and patients and um, how people are very hesitant to trust a pro-choice secular provider on their opinion regarding vaccines derived from aborted fetal tissue. Um, to answer the question is yes, any patient who is unvaccinated can be easily caught up on vaccines and that there are standardized schedules and ways to do this. And um, all they have to do is find that provider that they do trust and uh, catch up on vaccines. And as you know, we recommend the um, ethical choices in vaccines, um, vaccines that are not derived from aborted fetal tissue, which means making certain brand choices. And you can read all about uh, that, the Catholic answer to vaccines at mycatholicdoctor.com <laughs> slash vaccines. And um, there's a link to that. On, you can also have a consultation regarding vaccines. And uh, you can also text me through the app in a HIPAA compliant manner with your vaccine question. And, and a little follow-up question for me. How, how do you guys facilitate getting vaccines? Is that something you can write an order for? or? Yeah, obviously we're not vaccinating. We're a telehealth service. And um, there are a handful of vaccines that I can order at a pharmacy, such as uh, DTaP or the, the DTaP vaccine, um, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. I can send a, a, an order to a pharmacy, and a pharmacist can give that. The same thing with influenza vaccine. But um, most vaccines, you are going to have to go to um, either your local health department or a primary care provider. And um, But what we can provide is education regarding vaccines derived from aborted fetal tissue, also known as um, human diploid cell line vaccines. So that would be a great way to bridge the gap in trust that some patients may have with their providers or secular providers. That's right. And, uh, you know, our, our goal is to often with our second opinion patients, we have many patients that contact us with second opinions. And often we're going to, you know, we may support the view of your provider, but even if that's true, um, you know, we, we, we were either going to send you back to um, your established provider with, uh, with trust or we're going to make a referral to someone you can trust. Well, Kathleen, Dr. Kathleen Birchland, pediatrician and co-founder of MyCatholicDoctor.com, thank you for being with Dr. Doctor today. This has been illuminating and enjoyable. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. And we're back to put a bow on the show here at Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. 
And the medical trivia question that was asked dealing with our topic of virtual health or telehealth, in what year did Medicare first pay for telemedicine visits? In this case, it was for patients only in underserved rural areas. I was surprised how early it was. Yes, actually we are in the 20th anniversary year of Medicare paying, so in 1999. And according to our guest, Kathleen said this is gonna be kind of a watershed year because the vast majority of insurance companies now, by state law, have to pay. Well, and I, I think probably a lot of insurance companies are recognizing, especially some of the state-sponsored health programs like Medicaid, that an alternative to the patient going to the ER for a minor illness would be to provide this service that's reimbursed to the physician. So, well, if, and, and plus, a lot of patients like that are really overwhelming ERs, which is really meant for more urgent or emergent care. I, I know when, when I've worked in the ER, maybe, maybe a third of the patients needed to be in the ER. Exactly. Most of them, it was because they couldn't get into their doctor. It was the weekend, bad hours. But this would be a great opportunity, I think, at, on, on the large scheme of things for, for cost savings and also convenience for the patients. Uh, absolutely. I know I'm going to be looking more into it when I leave here. But we had another listener question that we want to cover. I think this is good because we talked about with my Catholic doctor, they have different types of healthcare professional. So this listener said, could you please explain the differences in job slash function slash training slash licensed abilities between physicians, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, with PAs, that's physician assistants, and NPs, nurse practitioners, becoming more prevalent, I'm not sure what their roles and abilities are and how they fit into the wonderful community. Thank you, and God bless you for all of your wonderful radio programs. Well, so that was nice. Thank you, listener. Yes. <laughs> so, Andrew, how would you start answering that question? You know, that's that's a great question, and, and I think one of the things it hits on is kind of the expanding um, health care landscape, you know. The healthcare team looks different now than it did maybe 50 years ago or something you might have seen in the movies where you've got some, some kind of grumpy old surgeon uh, who's usually barking orders at a bunch of people that stand when he enters the room. Um, nowadays, it's a much more collaborative effort, and that was something that was majorly emphasized in my training, and we see it every day in hospitals and clinics around the country. Each of these providers play a unique role, and the main difference is, as the listener has identified, is in licensure and in training. And so with, with a physician, uh, which probably most patients are familiar with, you know, the training is more extensive. It's a longer process where after uh, usually undergraduate, four years of undergraduate, you'd have four years of medical school and then residency varying between three and eight years of spending on what specialty, where you are working under the direct tutelage of somebody who's been doing this forever so that if you were prone to make a mistake, somebody would catch that and you're going to get really excellent training by avoiding all of those mistakes. Downside, it takes forever, so it's hard to produce a doctor. It's very expensive to train doctors, and there's not a lot of people signing up to get their first job when they're 30. Um, so there's, there's a lot of setbacks to the physician role, but that is the most traditional role. Some of the, the newer types of providers, like physician assistants, that's a two-year program, and after an undergraduate degree, you go into a two-year program to be a physician assistant. For nurse practitioners, it's after a four-year nursing degree, you go into a usually two- or three-year program to become a nurse practitioner. It's, it's very interesting because nurse practitioners and physician assistants can practice in any field of medicine, whereas I'm a family doctor. I went to a family medicine residency. I cannot do brain surgery. I can do stuff that's appropriate to family medicine. Tom's a dermatologist, probably also not brain surgery, but a lot more dermatology stuff. Physician assistants and nurse practitioners, after they finish their training, depending on the state, some states they can go and practice on their own and practice whatever specialty they want based, based on their desires. Other, other states, like the state we're in in Indiana, they have to be working in a team collaborative effort with a supervising or collaborating physician, and then their specialty would be whatever that physician's specialty is. But they can change specialties without much work. They can, but for instance, when we take on, a, we have three nurse practitioners and one physician assistant, and they see their own group of patients, uh, but they spend at least a year with us training. So they've seen thousands of patients with a dermatologist. Then after 
uh, usually six to nine months. Then they start see one or two an hour, and then we fully staff each one of those. And they gradually increase the number of patients they see. They decrease the amount we oversee them. But without that training from us, they could not come in after their training and start seeing dermatology patients. It'd be hard to do a good job because they don't have the residency experience that physicians exactly. get. So if you look at it, after high school, a PA has six years of training. A nurse practitioner, probably seven years of training. Uh, the least a physician will have after high school is going to be 11 years of training up to maybe 16 years of training. So as a physician, we're giving up our 20s and yeah. sometimes our early 30s to train. And as helpful as nurse practitioners and PAs are, if they were out on their own without any further training, they would know very little and they wouldn't know what they didn't know. In other words, their blind spot would be huge and they'd have nobody regularly to help them. On a team where we are regularly reviewing their charts and they're regularly coming to us with questions, we can make sure patients get the best care and they are increasing their knowledge and skill level day by day. I, I think it's a, the way I think of it is as an analogy to residency. If I, if I went and tried to practice medicine without residency, I'd really be at a loss having just only book knowledge to rely on but when you get out into practice and have somebody showing you the ropes, you really that's where you develop the clinical art of medicine. So thank you for a wonderful question. Yes, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official CMA radio program. And if you want to learn more about the Catholic Medical Association, you can go to cathmed.org, C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. Be sure to tune in next week for the appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing intermittent fasting with Dr. Craig Stump. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.